1 Samuel 17. It's a very long chapter, actually. Goliath has one of the longest speeches in the whole book of 1 Samuel. He talks a lot. He's all talk, though, when it comes right down to it. It's one of the best-known stories in the Bible. Even though most people don't know all the details of the story, the sentiment's cliche. David's the underdog. Goliath is the big boss, the, the company, big pharma, the government, who wants to just trample and control everyone. And so we got to root for David, the, the underdog, and we read ourselves into the story as David, but we really never cast ourselves as the Israelites or Saul. Every Sunday school lesson we tell our kids, we tell them to put themselves in the place of David, and we make the story about us. And most often we take the story as a moralistic Aesop's fable kind of thing. Be brave like David. Take on the giant. You can do it. And the pressure's on to perform, go big, take on the giant. God will give you victory, which usually means the life you want. And we miss the point. The story continues the narrative of the replacement of Saul. That's what 1 Samuel is all about. God is replacing corrupt priests and judges with the man of his choosing, Samuel. And he's replacing the failing king chosen by the people, Saul, with the man after his own heart, a man of his own choosing. And that's what 1 Samuel is all about. The story is a contrast between Saul and David, between the Lord's anointed and the fallen king. The story is about how God must intervene because humans consistently fall short. And so if you take the title on your outline there on the bulletin and just scratch it out, David the victorious king, just scratch that out and write David and the victory of God. I decided, nah, I don't like their title. (laughs) This is about David and God's victory. It's a long chapter, so we won't read the whole thing. Here's the Coles Notes version. David's the youngest of seven or eight brothers, depending on which genealogy you read. Um, He's sent by his dad to take some cheese and bread and stuff to the front lines, and he here, and and it's day 40 uh, of Goliath coming out and challenging everybody. So on day 41, David shows up. We'll talk about that in a moment. And he's like, what is going on here? The armies of God are in fear. They're hiding. Saul doesn't, Saul's kind of, said, hey, you know, if you go out and take on the giant and you win, then you'll get, a, my, you'll get a wife out of the deal. You can marry one of my daughters, uh, and I'll make sure that your family is tax-free for the rest of their lives. Pretty good deal, eh? Married into the royal family and no more taxes. David hears this giant come out mocking Israel and Israel's God, and he's like, what is, how come we're not doing anything about this? And he starts asking questions, and older brothers are like, oh, David, here you go again, big head. And Saul hears about it, brings David in, and he looks at him and goes, what are you talking about? Well, you're the only volunteer. Here's my armor. Go out. Good luck with that. Well, I won't have to marry off that daughter. (laughs) Little scrawny guy. David picks up five stones out of the river, says, you know, this armor thing just isn't going to work for me. Picks up five stones, rushes out. Him and Goliath have a bit of a, you know, what do you call that when two teams are just egging each other on before the, they're trash talking each other. 
David's like, enough of this. And they run into Goliath's like, oh, this will be easy. So the text actually says he lumbers towards David and David runs quickly. And in one verse out of like, I don't know, how many verses are in the chapter? It's a long chapter. One verse, wham, dead. And it's over. The three million ideas I want, I want us to think about out of this this morning is this God, God's anointed one fights for his people. God's anointed one trusts in God for victory. And God's anointed one exalts God as victorious. Again, if you're following in the Gospel Project or have the Daily Discipleship Guide, this isn't in there. It's my own stuff when I thought about this. It's important for us to remember at the beginning of this story, David is the Messiah at this point in the story. He is the anointed one, both with the oil of Samuel and the spirit of Yahweh. He is set apart specifically for God's glory and God's purposes. And in reading this story, we should therefore take the stance of John the Baptist who declared, I am not the Messiah, I am merely sent to point him out. So as we think about this, God's anointed one fights for his people. David comes to the field of battle, zealous for the glory of God and the God of Israel, God's chosen nation. Goliath comes at him, not just as a physical combatant, but in a spiritual battle. Goliath is the one who makes it about theology. He is cursing David by his gods. Ultimately, this battle, as every ancient Near Eastern battle was, is a battle about whose God is stronger. And with that is also the understanding that if you are defeated, you serve a lesser God and you become then a lesser people. The challenge of God, or the challenge of Goliath is about servitude, not only people to people, but God to God. And notice David arrives right on time. After 40 days, David arrives. That should be a big hint to any attentive Bible reader because the end of 40 days or the end of 40 years is always an indication of imminent divine intervention. It's like a formulaic thing. And when David arrives and does what he is told to do by his dad, he then hears Goliath's challenge, and he's bewildered that the men of Israel are responding in fear. <clears throat> David's first words in Scripture are in this chapter. He hasn't spoken yet, right? He was anointed, the Spirit came on him, move along. David doesn't say anything until this Moment, verse 26. These are David's first words in the Bible. And David said to the man who stood by him, what should be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? He's probably 15 to 17 at the time maybe anointed around 10 or 11, 12 years old by Samuel. Imagine that, 15-year-old kid being this gutsy. Sometimes it takes youthful brashness. God's people are enduring reproach, scorn, mocking, blasphemy. The same root word is used multiple times in this chapter. The reproach or defiance, Goliath's words are mocking Israel's identity as God's people. David's concern is for God's people that they are being demeaned and by extension, God himself is being mocked. So David repeats this again when he sees Saul, 
The armies of the living God are mocked in verse 38. David, the anointed one upon whom the spirit is rushed, steps forward to fight for the honor of God's people. He sees the Philistine. He hears the taunting words. He knows that this is a godless man trusting in his size and strength to intimidate and defeat God's people. So he steps forward as God's anointed in the power of the spirit to confront and remove the scorn from Israel. David's first words to Saul are important. Verse 32. David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Let no man's heart fail because of him. Not only was David intent on removing the scorn from God's people, but he also was there to embolden the hearts of Israel. We already know the tone in the camp back in verse 11, dismay and fear. In verse 24, they, they hid and they were afraid. David is saying, I will fight for you. I will remove your disgrace. I will strengthen your hearts. God's anointed fights for his people. The song of Hannah gave us a preview back in chapter two. In her song, she said, he will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces against them. He will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. The wicked shall be cut off. For not by might shall men prevail. David says this directly to Goliath. In the same way, Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, sings of the Messiah in Luke chapter 1. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. And when Jesus Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, after his baptism is tempted in the wilderness, he returns in the power of the Holy Spirit, goes to the synagogue in Nazareth and reads from the scroll of Isaiah, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, says Jesus, because he is anointed to proclaim good news to the poor, sent me to proclaim liberty to captives, recovery of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to declare the year of the Lord's favor. The anointed one fights for his people. He comes to remove their reproach and their shame and their scorn. He comes to remove the fear from our hearts so we can live with confidence and assurance that the Lord is with us to strengthen us, sustain us, and fight for us. And what David does in defeating Goliath, Jesus fulfills in defeating sin and death and Satan. David would win battles against the Philistine, but the effects would be temporary. Jesus' victory is forever. Sin is defeated, and Satan is rendered powerless. The anointed one fights for his people. He will fight for you. Second thing, God's anointed trusts in Yahweh, the Lord, for victory. The covenant name of God, Yahweh, doesn't occur in 1 Samuel 17 until David explains to Saul how it was that he defeated the lion and the bear. It was the hand of Yahweh, covenant God of Israel. He has been with me. He has strengthened me. He has granted me victory, and he will grant me victory 
for his greater glory. When David meets Goliath, Goliath mocks him by his God, but David responds that nothing he is and nothing he has will cause him to have victory in this moment. It is the Lord's battle, the Lord's victory. He is the Lord of hosts, and it is he who saves, and Yahweh God will deliver. David is confident, not because he's good with the sling, but because he knows the Lord. He knows the name of the Lord as a strong tower, and he will write many, many songs of how God comes through for his people in times of need, in the face of oppression and opposition, to glorify himself and to let the world know he alone is God and there is no other. In the trash talking, David doesn't even acknowledge Goliath's gods. He only points out to Goliath's gear. He knows the name of the Lord is a strong tower, and David comes without armor, spear, sword, or shield. He comes with nothing but the greatness of God. Now, Goliath assumed he was in a position of power, of strength. He was better equipped. He's larger. He's got a huge army behind him. What's his puny shepherd boy going to do? And in the same way, generations later, a man stood in front of Jesus and said, don't you know I have the authority to crucify you? To which Jesus replied, you would have no power over me unless it was given to you from above. In other words, Pilate, you come to me with the authority and the strength of Rome, but I am here in the name of the Lord. You have no power over me other than what you've been granted. And when the disciples attempted to stop Jesus' arrest, Jesus let them know he was not powerless. Don't you know I could call on my father and he would at once send a legion of angels to rescue me? He had the authority. And when he hung on the cross and was being mocked, save yourself, you saved others, you can't even save yourself. Jesus didn't reply, but instead he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And the greater battle against the greater enemy, Jesus trusted in his Father for victory, even when it meant walking straight into the jaws of pain and betrayal, abandonment, torture, abuse, and the excruciating pain of crucifixion and death. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23. He was when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued to entrust himself to him who judges justly. Hebrews 12, 2 says, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. God's anointed trusts the Lord for victory, not in self, not in our abilities, not in our wisdom, not in our money, not in our privilege, but in the Lord. God's anointed fights for his people. God's anointed trusts the Lord for victory. And then God's anointed one thirdly exalts the Lord as victorious. David points to the Lord is victorious from the very beginning. The Lord who delivered me will deliver me, he says to Saul. And before he's on the battlefield, he is assured of victory. Before the battle begins, David declares to Goliath, the Lord will deliver you into my hands. The Lord saves, the battle is the Lord's. 
And all the details of the drama from verses 1 to 47 are wrapped up in two verses. Goliath has one of the longest speeches in Samuel, but this battle is over before it's begun. What seemed like an impossible situation, a complete imbalance of power and opponents, a sure win for the Philistines comes crashing down in a moment. David, from the beginning, focuses on God's saving power. The victory is the Lord's. And no matter what we feel compelled to pursue and do in life or in ministry, we must have the heart and focus of David. It is God's battle. It is God's strength. And it is God who prevails. And for all of David's later faults, he knew that God was the real champion on the battlefield. And he would later write these words. Psalm 31, 1 to 5. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Never let me be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress, and for your name's sake, you lead me and guide me. You take me out of the net they have hidden for me. For you are my refuge. In your, into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. Psalm 37, five to seven, commit your way to the Lord, trust in him and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light, your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. This is the same David who faced down Goliath. Psalm 41 to 3, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog to set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to my God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. The lesson of the David and Goliath story is not that we are called to fight the giants but that we are to rely on God and his provision of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, God's anointed one who fights and wins the battles. We are not the Messiah. I am not the Messiah. The church is not the Messiah. Goliath won't fall because we try harder to get things right. Goliath will fall because Jesus the Messiah takes him down. I don't know what battles you may be fighting right now, but you cannot do it alone. David didn't take on Goliath alone. From a human perspective, it looks that way. From David's point of view, the victory was the Lord. Deliverance was from the Lord. Salvation belongs to our God, is what he sang, what he said. The enemy of our souls wants nothing more for us to cower in fear and hide in our tents and hope somebody else will fight the battle. If we trust in our own righteousness or strength of will or our good works for God, we will ultimately fail and fall apart. Because apart from God, Goliath will prevail. But God's anointed one fights for his people. God's anointed one trusts in the Lord for victory. God's anointed one exalts God as victorious. So why do we need this perspective on the story? Because if we think that it's about us taking on the giants in our life, then if we succeed, we are given to pride and self-righteousness. Or on the other hand, if Goliath wins, 
We fall into guilt and shame and self-loathing, and neither of these are where God wants us to be. We recognize, as David did, that even though we select five smooth stones from the brook and we head into battle with confidence, it is confidence that God alone can and will defeat the giants. Not our works, not our skill, not our goodness, but God. And if there are defeats or setbacks, then along with David and the Psalms, we can say this, I waited patiently for the Lord to answer me. For his timing is perfect. His rescue is sure. We may not understand God's delay or why he allows the pain in our lives to continue, but we can trust him for he has proved his love once for all on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, God's anointed king forever. Super easy to preach, very difficult to live. And so this morning, I want to end with Paul's prayer 2 Thessalonians 1, 11 to 12. Let's pray. To this end, we always pray for you, church, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, thank you that the anointed one, Jesus, came. And Lord, if we're really honest, we're not David in this story, we're the Israelites standing in fear of the evil that confronts us in this world. And we're maybe Saul hoping somebody else will do the job for us, the one that we probably should have been doing. And we're looking at the situation and we're not fixing our eyes on you. And so, Lord, for whatever situations people are facing today, the pains, the trials, the conflicts, the pressures, may we fix our eyes on you, Lord Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. May we not get distracted by the size of the conflict or the challenge ahead of us, but let us fix our eyes on you who has defeated Satan. He has no power. The resurrection over death proves that he is King of kings and Lord of lords and there is nothing, nothing that is outside of his lordship. So Lord, while we see this world crumbling in so many ways, We trust you because you are the only one who can put it back together. Because when we read to the end of the story, there is a new heaven and a new earth and the city of God comes down from heaven and makes you make your dwelling with us here. And everything is created new. And even in that newness, there is still healing work to be done because on the river of life grow the trees of life and the leaves are for the healing of the nations. Lord, I don't understand how that all works, but you will continue to heal what has been so broken. So Lord, help us to trust you. 
You are the anointed one and you fight for your people. Lord Jesus, you are the anointed one and you trusted in your Father for the victory. And then you have brought God, your Father, so much glory. And so, Lord, may we rest in that. You are victorious and you are worthy of our praise. In Jesus' name, amen.